0: Well, please uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll turn our attention to worshiping the Lord through studying His Word. By the way, before we get started, Aaron, I understand that you showed a picture of me and my translator last week, who might or might not be about 10 inches taller than me, and did you enjoy that? Yes. <laughs> We're going to have a good staff meeting this week. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to call this repositories of grace, repositories of grace. And you will be the objects of these receptacles, these repositories of grace. Let me read the passage that we'll be studying today, which is chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. It's a simple question, but I'd love to have a conversation with with each of you with this as the foundation, asking each other, what do you think about church? Church? I didn't say our church, that's a good question, but the church, church in general, the idea that God has collected a group of believers together to be his bride, his people. What's your relationship to the church? What's your relationship to to our church? Do you give much thought to your church beyond just attending and enjoying? I'm convinced that misunderstanding the purpose and nature of the church can damage your soul. It can stunt your growth spiritually. Misunderstanding the purpose and nature of the church can impair the ministry that God has intended for you to the world. And we've discussed this many times. All of you are theologians in general. You're either a good one or a bad one, an accurate one or an inaccurate one. But you're also all ecclesiologians. I'm not calling you a name. I'm just making a designation. That means you all have a doctrine of the church. You all have thinking about the church that articulates the way you feel about the church and promote the church. We've discussed it many times. What you believe makes a big deal and a big difference. I'm also convinced that the longer I'm on this earth and the more I'm in ministry that the central doctrine to the church is the doctrine of the church. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, excuse me, yes, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 3, verse 15, I write to you so that one ought to know how to conduct himself in the household of God. He calls the church the household of God. It's where God lives, which is the church the, of the living God. And then he says this, the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar of support of the truth. If the church is the pillar and support of the truth, and all doctrine is truth, then the church is where, where we come to have our doctrine in align with each other, in align with God's word. It's our mutual accountability, it's where we love and serve and learn. All of us demonstrate our theology of the church in many ways. The, the church's excuse me the attendance your attendance rather in the services says something about your view of the church your conversations about the church in general and your your local church says something about your view of the church your commitment to church membership says a lot about what you value in the church your giving of time resources service to the church says much about your theology And the way you exemplify your understanding of the church to your family and friends tells them much of what you believe about the church. One of the things that we talk about often in our parenting classes is to tell parents, your attitude about the church is very contagious with your children. How you think about the church, how you value the church. I'm not just talking about coming to church or coming to a service. But the relationships, the treasure of relationships that God gives in the church, that's what's important. Misunderstanding the nature, misunderstanding the purpose of the church leads to foreseeable and tragic responses to the church that you attend. You can be discontent with your church, dissatisfied with the church, unhappy in the church. You can become a critic and criticism can uh, uh, support the way you think about the church complaining about the church, ultimately abandoning involvement or even attendance in church. But I think if you boil all of that down together, the reasons that most people recoil from involvement and faithfulness to the church is connected to two central issues, at least in our generation. The first we can call consumerism and the second is spectatorism. Let me explain what I mean by that. Consumerism is approaching the church as a, as a consumer and the church is a product that you, you purchase, that you consume, that you, you invest in expecting some kind of return. Maybe the basest level of consumerism is seeing the church as something that you pay for to get what you want. <clears throat> I will never forget reading a letter one time from someone who wrote our church. This was many years ago. And basically, the, the tenor of the, of the letter was this. There are certain songs that I like and that I want to sing. And if we don't sing those songs, I'm going to stop giving money to the church. It's quite a threat, isn't it? Is the church a commodity that you purchase? <laughs> when you approach the church as a spectator, similarly, you come to church Expecting a show. The staff, the music team, even the preacher are seen as paid professionals who put on a production to be enjoyed and even to be judged. Listen, approaching the church as a consumer or a spectator has a common thread. It sees the church more as a service to be provided to you than it does a treasury of relationships. Please don't misunderstand. Yes, the church provides incalculable services to us all, to our souls. It's intended to be a service to our soul. The benefits to a believer of the church are worth the investiture. You you invest in the church and you get back, and that's wonderful. That's a part of the biblical framework of being in the church. These are blessings we should recognize and enjoy. And yes, we should come to church to be bedazzled, not not, not entertained, but bedazzled, overwhelmed, amazed. But we're bedazzled and overwhelmed and amazed by God, by His Son, by the working of His Spirit, not by the performance that someone puts on a stage. So how do we, maybe, maybe we should say how should we understand the church better, understand it rightly. The passage before us is exactly about that. In fact, the next three sermons are gonna be exactly about that issue as well. Your faith in Christ is inseparable from your participation in the family of God. In other words, the idea that you have a relationship with God but you're not invested in the church is biblically oxymoronic. It's impossible. There was no idea of a believer not plugged into a local church, not committed to a local church. And your participation, your ministry is built specifically on the fact that God has gifted you in unique and special ways. We have a kind of a funny saying in our culture where it's a a derisive kind of criticism. We say, oh, you think you're God's gift to him or her or to men or to women or to the athletic team or whatever. And we kind of laugh that off. But can I tell you, you are God's gift to the church. And you have been gifted with unique abilities for the benefit and the health of the church. You are God's gift and have been given gifts. With so much confusion about how to be involved in the church, how to think rightly before it, before the ch- about the church, I think that the passage before us gives us some clarification that will help you. So Paul outlines for us three simple clarifications of the believer's giftedness. Because if you can understand your giftedness and what spiritual gifts are, you will enjoy the church better, benefit more from her, and contribute better. Three clarifications of the believer's giftedness. The first is in verse 7, the source of Where does it come from? The source of our gifts, the grace of God. (coughs) Verse 7. But, now, that's an important adversive, very important, because he moves from what he's been talking about in the previous verses, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, and through all, and in all, this common faith we have together in the same theology, as well as the common attitudes we should have toward each other, humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And verse 2, all this common sameness, which is wonderful, but with all of that sameness, but to each one, to each one, Now he gets individual, uniquely. To each one of us, grace was given. And that grace was given according to the measure, stature of Christ's gift. Look at what he's doing. He's moving from the common confession of our theology, all these one phrases, one, 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 one to now the individual uniqueness of every believer in the church. Each one. That's an important phrase. We'll see that several times in the next few minutes. We change from what unites us in doctrine to what is distinctive about us in service. Paul informs us that to each one, grace was given. You say, what, how, what does this mean, what, what grace was given? Well, as we study over and over, the, the primary way to interpret the Scriptures is by context, right? What does the context tell us about this grace that's given? Well, it's not hard to figure out because he says grace was given to us in verse 7. And look at verse 8. And he gave gifts, these grace gifts, to men. So the gifts that he gives to men and women in the church are an evidence in a parallel with the grace that he gives. The grace that he gives are are the gifts given so that we can, we'll see this in the coming weeks, be unified, be matured together, be equipped to serve, all based on his giving of gifts that's an expression of his grace. And don't miss the fact that these giving of gifts, this giving of grace, includes each one of us, one of the worst Things you can think in the church is to look around at preachers or teachers or leaders, musicians, people who are up front and think, well, they're gifted, but I'm not. The gifted people are the up front people, and I'm the ungifted pew sitter. Paul explodes that idea in this passage. To each one, grace or spiritual giftedness, as we'll see in a minute, was given. You have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, purchased through Christ's incarnation to serve the church. All of you and each of you. Paul goes into great detail in 1 Corinthians 12 to say that these gifts function like parts of our body. We've looked at this many times. And, and, and no one, I, I mean, if I came to you today and said, which, which part of your body would you like to sacrifice or have not useful today? I mean, that's, that's silly. We play games where we, we try to identify things by blindfolding us and you know, what does this sound like? Or who's, you know, uh, who's saying this? Or we play games by closing your ears and, what, and trying to sing. And lots of things that limit our, the parts of our body just so we see how valuable they are. Do, do you understand that that's exactly what Paul's saying with each, each of you to the body of Christ? You are important, Don't ever think that because you may not have a more showy gift, that's what Peter calls them, that you're any less important and have any less service and have any less impact or influence or significance in the body of Christ than those who are more obvious. You, Each one of you has been given the gift of grace in your spiritual giftedness. 1 Corinthians 12, I can't resist talking about this a minute. We've studied 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 many times before. Those are a list of the spiritual gifts that God gives. The reason we call them spiritual gifts is not because they're they're like this uh, uh, spiritual, ethereal nature. And when you see them, you hear them, you feel them, you think, ooh, that was spiritual. Spiritual is capital S, spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives them. That's why we call them spiritual gifts. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 and following. <laughs> and there are a variety of gifts, he says, but the same spirit, sameness, individualness. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. Diversity in unity. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But, here's our phrase again, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you're given gifts, just as Paul is saying, for the good, as we'll see in the next few weeks, for the equipping, for the uplifting, for the maturing, for the unifying of others. Then he gives a smattering of examples. He says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Listen to the Spirit emphasis. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues or languages. To another, the interpretation of those languages. To one and the same Spirit. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to, here's our phrase again, each one individually just as He works wills, He desires. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, many parts, so all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 3. And we're all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member, one part, but Many. Now, when you look at spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and in First Peter 4 and in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a way to divide those up into a couple of classifications. One way has two classifications and another way also has two classifications. The first way that we often talk about is there are sign gifts and there are continuing gifts. Sign gifts, we just listed some of them, are healings, miracles, speaking foreign languages that were unlearned, interpreting those languages, and prophesying. We believe that those gifts were a part of the apostolic era that verified the message that the apostles were carrying. Hebrews chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 talk about the fact that these were the signs of an apostle, they were sign gifts. But there are also continuing gifts, which were service gifts, ways to care for others in the body of Christ. And we've looked at that many times. I'm not going to belabor it again now. That's one way of looking at the gifts, those that have passed away, the sign gifts, those that have continued on, the continuing gifts. I think a better way is given to us by Peter in 1 Peter 4, and that's there are speaking gifts and serving gifts. Listen to what he says, 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. I mean, this whole discussion of gifts is how do you love one another? How do you care for one another? How do you build up one another? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And then he says it. As each one, there's our phrase again, individually, each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards, owners of the manifold grace of God. There again, the manifold grace of God is equated with spiritual gifting here. Then he gives us the categories. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Now notice that the speaking gifts are not those who are good at public speaking. There are those who know how to explain the utterances of God such that when you hear the teachers in the church you don't, you don't want to walk away saying, that was a good speech. You want to go away saying, they explained the Bible to me better. That's the point. They speak. One, whoever speak. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, the very Word of God. Whoever serves, this is incredible, is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God also supplies. That means the service gifts are no less miraculous, no less impressive. The service that we offer to each other in the body of Christ through serving gifts is such that it becomes a supernatural encounter. Encouragement has a supernatural, eternal flavor. Encouragement has, has a way to lift up your soul, not just make you feel good in the moment. So that in all things spiritual gifting, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's saying, some gifts involve the ability to teach God's word with clarity and helpful explanation. Other gifts involve the abilities to come alongside others for encouragement and spiritual aid. And sometimes there's a mixture of those gifts. People often ask, Are my natural abilities spiritual gifts? Now, that's a hard question to answer because I can say yes and no. They're not supernaturally charged by the Holy Spirit, but there are certain people who are encouraging, gregarious, outgoing people, and when they become believers, the Lord uses that natural gifting with a supernatural motivation, and they change that into spiritual application. None of these... Spiritual gift lists are are hard and fast. I don't think it's, here's the 16 and you better find yours. There's a mixture of these. Someone has described it as having a palette of of colors of paint and a little of this and a little of that, and you come out with the color of the the palette that's, that's you, that's unique. It's like a fingerprint. These are not necessarily your natural abilities and talents, but... I think your talents and natural abilities can be used to serve the body of Christ. These are supernatural abilities of grace given by the Holy Spirit to function with spiritual impact on each other for the benefit of the body of Christ. And I have to say this. (laughs) There's no test that can with absolute certainty tell you what your spiritual gifts are? When I was a collegian, oh man, we had these spiritual gift inventory tests. I must have taken 12 of them. And I found out something. Every time I took one, I, was, I found different spiritual gifts that I had. Um, I don't know if I was changing or the Lord was changing that. But most who look at these kind of testing, you can add you know the, the Enneagram test in there. These are ridiculous tests. I'm sorry. People answer these questions according to what they want to be, not what they really are. Are you a gifted teacher? Do you like people? Do people like you? Wouldn't you? I mean, how do you answer these questions? (laughs) Let me say something that might feel a little strong, but these personality tests, I think, can be a satanic tool to wrongly give you an identification that doesn't exist. Please don't fall victim to the deception of these tests that try to isolate you and define you and identify you. You say, okay, well, how do I discover my spiritual gifts? Drum roll. You try them out. (laughs) You serve, you teach, you engage, and you see where the Lord blesses you. What do you want to do to serve the body of Christ? And if you don't want to do something, that's another problem. So look at these lists. Talk to your care group. What a great care group that would be. Discussion for you sit around a living room and say, how, "How do you see me serving the body? What, what, what do you think? How do you think I'm gifted?" Because you all are. To each one, each one, each one, gifts are given. How can I be used by God to supernaturally impact the people in our church? That's the way you find your spiritual gift. You can study these passages, but there may be some conglomeration and confluence of these gifts that that equal you that are not exactly spelled out. What a joy. By the way, interestingly enough, the only time we... Find a select group of people, especially men who were gifted in the Old Testament. It was the Levites who were gifted to serve another select group, the priests. But in the New Testament, it's not just the Levites, it's each one, everyone. I mean, I just get a little tinge of excitement looking at all the faces right now, thinking, gifted, 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 how, 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 how. Do you know? I hope you care. It's all a gift of God's grace. The second clarification of the believers' giftedness, we know where it comes from, God's grace, that it's universal for all believers. Secondly, the establishment of our gifts, and this is the incarnation, the incarnation. Now, let me say before we dive into this, this verse that I, uh, in my study of this passage, uh, I came across several commentators who said that this, the next two verses, three verses, are the hardest to interpret in the entire New Testament. Some said the entire Bible. That's pretty intimidating when you know you got to talk to Mission Road who knows their Bible very well the next week. What do we do with this? Well, you say, what's the problem? Let me explain it to you. Therefore it says, now I love how therefore it says, it's really a reference to the Psalms. It says, we're supposed to know what it is, and it is the Bible. It is the Old Testament. Therefore it says... And then he quotes Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. He took prisoner prisoners, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens. This seems a bit odd at first, but with a little explanation, I think you'll understand it. Verses eight to 10 are, are an illustration, an illustration of the grace given and that God gives gifts to men and that's grace. That's the bottom line. But this is one of the more interesting Old Testament references in the New Testament. And the reason is that when you read Paul's allusion to Psalm 68, it doesn't seem to jive with the actual text of Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a song. It was written by by David to celebrate God's conquest of the Jebusite city that would ultimately become Jerusalem. Listen to Psalm 68, 18, and maybe you can look at Ephesians 4, 8 when I read this. Psalm 68:18 You have ascended on high you have led captive your captives you have received gifts from men even among the rebellious also that the Lord God may dwell there do you see a problem Ephesians says you speaking the song you gave gifts to men The text says, in Psalm 68, you received gifts from men. So what are our options? Well, Paul didn't know the Old Testament. That's option one. Does anyone buy that option? No, that's, that's a ridiculous option. Option two, Paul thought the psalm needed improvement, so he improved it. No, 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 that's not it at all. How do we make sense of this? Well, some suggest that Paul is not quoting the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, but from the Aramaic Targum, which is used by Orthodox Jews and it was at the time then to interpret the text. And the Septuagint translates the Hebrew as you have taken gifts. The Targum translates that you have given gifts. So we could look to there and say, he was quoting that and that's a a fine answer that many scholars resort to. Let me just say, I don't believe Paul is misquoting the psalm. I don't think he's misunderstanding the psalm. Because for simply put, for him to give gifts, he has to first have the gifts in his possession. So he receives them in order to give them. He's conflating those ideas for his own interpretation. Just think about this in chapter four, verse 11. <laughs> God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So God is still giving when you get down to verse 11. Paul's quoting this passage in Psalm 68 to show simply this. Christ was victorious over his and our spiritual enemies. He took from the spiritual enemies the spoils of battle and he passed those spoils, those gifts on to believers who in the exercise of the same gifts can be victorious over the enemy as well. A little background. After a victory in the ancient Near East, especially in David's time, David himself, when they won over an opposing army, they would bring home the spoils of war, and they would climb, they would ascend, they would climb to the highest point, a highest ridge or a highest mountain in front of his people. Then there would be a parade on the side of that hill where they would display the recovered captives that his enemies had captured. This is interesting. He went to take captive the captives. In other words, when he conquered those who were in opposition, they had prisoners on David's side that he rescued. It's POWs. He led captive those who were captive, those who had been prisoners. So the imagery is simple. When Jesus takes us captive, he's taking us captive because we were captive. Ephesians 2, 1, to the devil himself. So I don't think there's any discrepancy, there's any contradiction in Paul's use of this psalm since that's precisely precisely what David did when he robbed the enemy of their gifts. He received the gifts as the king, but then he distributed them to his men. So no interpretive, no contradiction there at all. Paul's just applying it. Simple reference to Christ coming from heaven to earth. Now, let's, let's try to make sense of this. Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth. I, I have to tell you a story. I was probably a <coughs> junior in high school went away to a Christian camp with some friends. And the very well-meaning preacher preached on this passage. And the whole sermon, and he was talking about the Apostles' Creed as well, and the whole sermon was, was basically saying, this is teaching us that Jesus descended in the lower, came from heaven, descended into the lower parts of the earth, which is hell, paid for our sins by going to hell instead of us and for us, and, and, for us, and came back, and, and now he's the victor. It's called the ransom theory. He paid our ransom by going to hell for us. There's a problem with that theory though. And that is it's utterly crushed by Jesus' own words on the cross. Because when he had lived his life, was executed by those Romans, the hands of the Jews, and was about to breathe his last breath and die, what was his utterance? It is finished. Another way to translate that, tetelestai, it's done. It's over. He didn't have to go pay for our judgment of hell. He didn't have to go to hell to do that. He did that for dying for us. Now, Peter tells us he went to, during those three days, and made a proclamation, an announcement to heaven and hell, that he'd won. That's different than going to pay for our sins. So that's not what this is about. Then what is this? What does it mean that he descended into the lower parts of the earth? It's not that complicated. The contrast is in descending to here in reference to ascending to there, heaven and earth. It's just heaven and earth. His descension is his incarnation. He came to Earth. That's where he lived the life that would ultimately, through his death, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, that would ultimately procure his right and his ability to give gifts to men. He came to earth. That's the ascension, the incarnation, simply a reference from Christ coming of Christ coming from heaven to earth, and then he ascended. That's Acts chapter one. After 40 days, he gets the disciples together. He gets his friends together. And from there, he ascends back into the clouds. And, and an angel shows up and says, just as you saw him leave, guess what? He's going to come back just like that. He won the victory, disperses the... Spoils to the church in spiritual gifts of grace so that we can minister to one another and make Christ known in the world and draw men to Himself. The point is simple. Jesus' procurement and distribution of spiritual gifts came, this is what Paul is saying, at a great cost. A great cost. The establishment of our gifts was Him coming. To the, earth in the incarnation. <coughs> now, this leads us, number three, to the purpose of our gifts, the fullness of Christ. But this purpose is going to extend over the next few weeks. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a head start on that because this is exactly what He unfolds in gifted men and in the purpose of our gifts as well. Look at the end of verse 10. He, by the way, before we go into that, notice the, the detail in verse 10. He ascended far above the heavens. That's what happened in Acts 1. He went above the clouds so that he might, here's our phrase, fill all things. That's the purpose of our gifts, the fullness, filling of Christ. There's a Greek word that you, you need to know and you need to be familiar with. We, you don't have to know a lot of Greek words. There are some that are really helpful. This is one of them. Plerao. It is a workhorse in Ephesians. Plerao means fill up or fullness. The word was used of, of a sail on a boat. And when the sail was, was limp, it wasn't moving the boat along. When it was pleraoed, the wind would fill the sail and move the boat. It means influence and leadership and guidance, pressure. In fact, let me read you right out of my Greek dictionary. The idea of totally full to fill up to completely influence. That's parao. Paul's point here is that the fullness, the influence, the reign, the sovereignty of Christ is to rule all. But we have to ask again, what is all? Remember we've studied over the last few weeks that I mean, I grew up hearing over and over all means all" and that's all all means, but that's just not true because I wish I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me and play in the NFL, but I can't do that. All doesn't mean all. Sometimes it does. It doesn't here. It didn't in the previous passage where it says, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, he's not over and through unbelievers in the same way he is a believer, so we have to change our meaning. This is talking about the church in verse 6, and here again I think it's talking about the church, the all, at the end of verse 10. Now, let me be careful. He is overall as the sovereign because of who he is, and we should understand that and know that. In fact, Jeremiah predicts this in Jeremiah 23, 24. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Paul talks about this universal filling in chapter 1, verse 23, and chapter 3, verse 19, that God fills all things. What does that mean? He's the sovereign. He is the ultimate influencer. Paul's point here in Ephesians 4 is to explain that Jesus' incarnation, His crosswork, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His ascension qualified Him to be exalted above all the heavens, to fill all things through His ministry in the church. I mean, one could ask, if He is overall, in all, through all, filling all right now, I hope He's not reading the newspaper. So what does that mean? He is extending His sovereignty now through the church. One day He will reclaim the whole earth. Ephesians 3.19, pray that you know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you will be plerao, filled up to all the plerao, fullness of God. You'll be influenced by the influenceable God, moved by the great mover. We find this verb interestingly in um, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be plerao, filled, moved along, influenced by the Spirit. That's his sovereign rule directed exactly and aimed specifically at you and me. Yes, Christ fills the universe through his exercise of his lordship over everything. He is the sovereign, he is the Lord. He's the functional, powerful ruler over principalities, giving peace and strength to his people through whom he fills all purposes. Yes, yes, yes. But this has a more precious and personal application He fills all. He gave gifts. Ready for this? He gave gifts so that he could influence and fill the church. Man, that'll give you goosebumps that he is using, he is ministering through us to us. Look where this is going. Just sneak ahead. Verse 12, he gave gifted men for the equipping of the saints for the work of serving each other, service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith. So look at what we have so far. We're we're equipped, we're gifted, we know about our, our gifting to serve. We wanna build up the body of Christ. We wanna promote the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man where we function as maturing agents with each other to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness, there is the end, of Christ. So he fills us to make us mature so that we begin looking like his Son, Christ himself. The goal of ministry is, is to use our spiritual gifts to unify our faith with each other and move one another to maturity in Christ. You you are your brother's keeper and your sister's keeper. Church is not... Church is not a place where we attend. It is a treasury of relationships that God intends to use with each other to make us conform to the image of His Son, to be like Him. Sure, attendance is important. Sure, our gatherings are important. But can I encourage you that your conversations with each other in exercising your own spiritual gifts are equally and sometimes more important than any man who stands in this pulpit and preaches to you. You're a part. And if you're not doing your part, the body suffers. You ever had an injury? Rolled your ankle, broken ankle, broken arm? You know what it's like to try to function fully, when something is not working in your body. That's an image of what the church could be like unless each one knows that you're an each one who has given grace to each one. Let me ask you some questions. Are you aware that you're a repository of grace? That ought to freak us out a little bit. Are you aware that God has pushed all of humanity aside with full focus on you and given you specific grace to be a steward of, to be a caretaker of. You. Do you look at others and say, oh, they're gifted, they're, 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 they're blessed, they're, they're full of grace, but not me. No, all believers have this ministry, which leads me to a second question, are you aware of your unique gifting to our local body of believers? You are God's gift to us. Do you know how you're gifted? And gifted people plug in by not casual association, casual attendance, it's, it's all in this. You're all in for His glory and for the benefit of the people that you you really love and you want to see mature. Can I give a it, shameless plug for a care group? This is where it happens best and most, most deliberately, most often. Why would, let me just ask you, why would any believer who wants to be mature resist being a part of a smaller group of believers who want to encourage each other to be more like the Savior? I just can't think of a reason not to. I'm tired. I'm busy. I'm no, 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 no. You need each other. And thirdly, are you? Do you understand Christ's fullness in your life and ministry? Fullness is play right, oh, influence, movement, wind in a sail. Do you understand that He is actually, He is actually ministering to others through you. This shouldn't surprise you. We're going to find the same thing in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be controlled by wine, but be plerao, be be filled with the Spirit, moved and influenced by the Spirit so that, this is incredible, we can display and exercise and execute the influence of the Spirit through our gifts. That's, I, I, I mean, we're not, who's worthy of that? Answer, no one. Who gets that grace? Answer, everyone. Everyone. Can I just look at you in the eye and say, if you're a believer, I need you. The people around you, Need you. Nobody's on the bench in this game. So what do you do? Find find out how you're gifted by God's grace and take care of the people. And then Jesus in John 13 said, They people driving right there that I can see, they will know that we love the Lord when we love each other. And it starts with you understanding the grace given to you in your spiritual gifting at the great cost of the incarnation of our precious Lord. Oh, Father, reveal to us how you want to use us and the way you've gifted us to be used. For your glory and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen.